1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to another episode of Chats in Linguistic Diversity. My name is Ingrid Piller, and I'm Distinguished Professor at Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia, where I lead the Language on the Move research team. My guest today is Professor Aneda Pavlenko from the Center for Multilingualism Across the Lifespan at the University of Oslo in Norway. It's a great pleasure to be talking to you today, Aneta, and um, for our listeners, let me just introduce you to um, Aneta Pavlenko. So I'm speaking today to Professor Aneta Pavlenko, who um, is Professor of Applied Linguistics in the Center for Multilingualism in Society across the lifespan at the University of Oslo. She's a past president of the American Association of Applied Linguistics, and um, the winner of numerous research awards for her fantastic research in the sociolinguistics and psycholinguistics of multilingualism, with a specific focus on um, forensic linguistics, she's the winner of um, one of her research articles is the winner of the 2021 triple AL research article award. She's also the winner of the 2009 TESOL award for distinguished research and, um, the winner of the British association for applied linguistics two- 2006 best book of the year award. Welcome on the show. Welcome to link chats and linguistic diversity, Anita. It's so great to be able to talk to you. Um, Before I go on, I just should say for our listeners that we've actually been working together for a really long time. We both of us, we met at a conference in the late 1990s um, on bilingualism at the University of Vigo in Galicia in Spain. And we were both just fresh out of our PhDs then, and we went on to do research together in um, the gender aspects of bilingualism. And it's just wonderful to be able to share a, a research career, really, with someone who has very similar interests over such a long time. Welcome, Aneda.
0: Thank you so much, Ingrid. And uh, that's what I would have said, too. It's not just the meeting of two scholars, but a meeting of two friends. I still remember meeting you in Vigo and how much I enjoy your presentation at that that's somebody very interesting I wanted to meet. And then you came over to me and said, well, I really wanted to meet you. And ever since I feel that we have been on the same wavelength. And that's
1: just really wonderful. I think um, to actually have these, this long, um, this long and joint history of um, joint work. Well, um. Our listeners, I think, really want to know about your career as a researcher a bit more, so I was wondering whether you could start, off or start us off by telling us how you got interested in the kind of multilingualism research you do and what started your career as a multilingualism researcher?
0: Well, uh, in many ways, it's the same start as it is for many people. It's out of personal experience. But it was somewhat of an unusual personal experience from a Western point of view. I grew up um, behind the Iron Curtain in a society that made brainwashing into a form of art. Um, and for many of us, foreign languages were a way out, at least virtually from that world behind the Iron Curtain. So I grew up in the capital of Ukraine, Kiev, which at the time was a Russian speaking city And, um, one that encouraged foreign language learning. So regular newspaper kiosks were full of, um, magazines and newspapers in English and French and Polish and Hungarian. And, uh, my family budget was spent on almost all of them. And I blame my mother. She was an English teacher. She tried to teach me English at the age of six. It didn't work. I actually have a post about this on my blog in psychology today. So mom was determined to make me multilingual. She hired a Polish teacher that went much better. I got into Polish books and media. We also had in Kiev a wonderful bookstore with books in different foreign languages, mainly from socialist countries, but the Polish section was great. And then I started with French and Spanish and then English somehow learned uh, itself. I don't know how that happened, but I never formally studied English. That's my dirty secret. And when I came to the United States, I wanted to go to grad school and see how that language learning works, actually. And then when I got into a graduate program in applied linguistics, I realized that second language acquisition is incredibly narrow for my taste. And so in yet another act of defiance, I decided, well, I'll study the thing that a few Americans are talking about, which is multilingualism. So that necessitated many trips to Europe, to European conferences. And I have been happy with this choice ever since.
1: Yeah, I think that's... um... And that's still true today, that applied linguistics in many ways is, of course, so focused on the experience of TESOL and of teaching English to speakers of other languages and learning English. But certainly multilingualism has been gaining a lot more recognition um, since we first met. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely.
1: And, and there is so much more research. I mean, some people have been talking about the multilingual turn in um, applied linguistics and um, the center at which you work, the C- um, Center for Multilingualism and Society across the lifespan at the University of Oslo is probably also one of the, the evidences for that
0: multilingual turn. And I would not call it the evidence, no. I would call it the heart of research on multilingualism. I Apologies. <laughs> and what I love about the center and what you said about multilingualism, when you and I met, the field was, as a field, was just taking off. The research was there, uh, the journal Multilingual was there, but the field took off. And I feel that in 20-something years since, it got fragmented in a way that we sometimes lose track of some of the more interesting and important questions in a way that sociolinguists no longer talk to psycholinguists that they did in the beginning and what i deeply love about the center the center is based on the idea that we all should talk to each other and sociolinguists should talk to psycholinguists as researchers in the lunchroom and so the center in a way for me continues to bring people together and to Act is a very important force in the field.
1: Yeah, and that's—I mean, I'm—I'm—I'm I'm, I'm glad to hear that. And um, that's certainly one of the the concerns I kind of share about the fragmented nature of the conversation and how um, I would position myself fairly firmly in the sociolinguistics camp. How we actually really often have difficulties bridging. Um, to the people who work in psycholinguistics. And that's what I admire so much about your work, that you actually um, not only bridge that gap, but actually do research in both camps. And um, you've just um, delivered the Einer, the annual Einar Haugen Lecture. And I was just wondering whether you could tell us a bit more um, what that annual Einar Haugen Lecture is and who Einar Haugen was.
0: Well, the lecture is a great honor. It was a privilege. Um, It takes place every year on September 26th. It's the European Language Day. And it honors a great Norwegian-American linguist who was born at the height of the Great Migration in 1906. Hagen was from a family of Norwegian immigrants. And so he wrote about what he knew best about the consequences of the Great Migration in the United States. He was a very prominent linguist uh, who studied Norwegian language in the Americas. He's a um, very prominent book about bilingualism. He ended his career as a professor at Harvard from, I think, 1964 to 1975. And he's considered to be one of the founding fathers of sociolinguistics and of the field of bilingualism. And I'm very fortunate in that uh, my own mentor, Francois Grosjean, was mentored by Einar Haugen. So I feel that I am at one remove. Oh, I didn't and... know that. Oh, that's Yes, uh, Francois gave uh, the same lecture a few years ago, and he talked about his relationship and his friendship with Einar Haugen. <laughs> that video is still on the website of the center, and I recommend it to anyone who's interested in learning more. And that I think that's so interesting, actually, all these kinds
1: of familial relationships almost, all these mentoring relationships across generations. And it's really an important, uh, that's important to know also how conversations and debates in the field are shaped. And I'm just always fascinated by um, these kinds of personal relationships that influence our research so much. Um
0: Absolutely. And if any prospective graduate student is listening, I would say that the history of the field is something that needs to be written. The social history of the field should be written now. While so many people who started that bilingualism, multilingualism out as academic field are still alive, they can be interviewed. And I, for one, would love to read something like this
1: Yeah, and
0: someone else could interview you again. Um, Uh, I wasn't the one who organized it. I was a young junior scholar at the time. Anita, um, in your lecture, you've been talking about
1: multilingualism in history. And um, we often hear that, you know, we live in a super diverse world and that the world has never been so multilingual as it is now. Um, So you've been addressing that question in your Einar Haugen lecture, and I'm wondering, is it true that we live in the most multilingual of times ever?
0: Um, I could just say no and move on, but (laughs) um, let's start with the term multilingual right? It's a very interesting term because it's open to so many different readings. What is a multilingual city? Luxembourg, Montréal are multilingual because their residents share two or more of the same languages. The residents are multilingual. But the cities that are vying for the title of the multilingual capital of the world are places like New York and London and Sydney and Melbourne, where the elite is unapologetically monolingual. Uh, with the exception, perhaps, of Boris Johnson, who likes to recite things in ancient Greek. And uh, they share a single lingua franca. So you can be multilingual if you residents speak many languages, or you can be multilingual at the expense of the many, many languages spoken by other people. And um, if that is your definition of linguistic diversity, then uh, some cities have become more diverse, true. If, however, we take linguistic diversity a little more seriously, even without agreeing on a definition of language that no two linguists can ever agree on. And we think about the repertoires we call languages around the world, then everybody's in agreement that linguistic diversity is on the decline. The many endangered languages, they are dying every day while Lingua Francas are gaining more and more speakers. So in a way. Multilingualism and linguistic diversity are whatever you want them to be. Mm-hmm. If you want to see your world as endangered in terms of diversity, you see that. Mm-hmm. If you want to see Western cities are more diverse than ever, then that's what you see. But I would never ever make any conclusions about the state of the world um, based on the state of a few Western cities, because um just because that's where the influential linguists live. Mm-hmm. I think it's a very self-serving dogma that is perpetuated uh, by linguists because it serves them well, but uh, for no other reason. It's self-evident, it's cliched. Yes, there are more immigrants, but um, what does it mean for our linguistic repertoires? Nothing. Mm -hmm. After the Norman invasion, uh, the poor English had to learn some administrative Latin and some colloquial French. No, there are so many languages that nobody feels compelled to learn anything. There are absolutely no consequences for Londoners uh, as Polish and Urdu speakers arrive. Nobody's running to learn Polish and Urdu. So in that way, this diversity is visible, but incredibly inconsequential for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're
1: making so many important points. And, you know, I wonder even about... um the fact that multilingualism and linguistic diversity has increased. Yes, of course, it has increased because, um, you know, human, the number of humans has increased so tremendously on the globe. So there are just so many more people. And that means, of course, also there are many more migrants and whatever. But has that changed um, proportionally in any way? I think you've just made a very convincing argument that actually, um, it's kind of a cliche that allows us then to merrily go on monolingually in, in Western English-speaking countries in particular and kind of, um, you know, continue with English while we pay lip service to linguistic diversity. Um,
0: I was wondering whether you oh could... maybe I could add one more thing before we move on. In the lecture, I was talking about language and migration and mobility, which have all become cliches, the words we use in different ways. And I just read uh, the Rutledge Handbook on Migration and Language and Migration. It has 611 pages. And all of those 611 pages are dedicated to labor migrations, to migrations that increase multilingualism. What I don't see, strikingly, are the parallel processes that dominated the modern world since um, the 17th century and were exacerbated by the two world wars in the 20th century, which is ethnic and linguistic unmixing. While one half of the world lives in cities where diversity is increasing, the other half of the world lives in cities where diversity either decreased or is on the decrease now as uh, the... People who live in the former Soviet Union, former Yugoslavia, are unmixing at very rapid pace. Um, but when I tell my colleagues that um, some Poles, Ukrainians, Slovaks live in repopulated cities, they don't know what that means. Mm-hmm. As a German, you would know what that means, how Breslau became Wroclaw. Yeah, look, I mean,
1: I think um, the history of the 20th century is exactly the history of unmixing. It all started with the First World War and um, for Central Europeans and um, you're from behind the Iron Curtain. I grew up on the on the other side of the Iron Curtain, but certainly for um, Germans, as you say, um, the the unmixing that took place both through um, the Holocaust in particular, and um, and and then also the aftermath of the Holocaust and the massive refugee streams that followed the Second World War, uh, you know, are just still very present. But still, but at the same time, once we then come to our linguistic research and our education research and talk about migration today, it's kind of like there is this disconnect that we forget about this history or we don't see a connection between the history of the first half of the 20th century and and then the second half of the 20th century, which seems to be like our starting point for some reason. Well,
0: I think there's a good reason. And the reason for this, and this is something I'm once again saying, uh, for the students is that there is a certain fear among some junior scholars to be different, they feel compelled to say the exact same thing that some of their senior scholars are saying. And if everybody is studying super diversity, then they will go out of their way to find evidence, which is what we call confirmation bias. And we don't do enough to encourage people to be different. And I think you and I um, had the careers we had precisely because we didn't let anybody set our research questions for us. Mm-hmm. I definitely did not listen to anyone who ever wanted to talk to me among my advisors, <laughs> it, like, they eventually put up with that. Mm-hmm. And um, I would encourage that today that just because everybody is working on super diversity and multilingualism be- being more than ever before, doesn't mean that you have to do that too. I would encourage more people to actually disagree, dissent and do their own thing because that kind of mass produced scholarship where you know the few words change but the content is the same is not going to take one's career in a very interesting direction. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah, And there were so many, I mean, I think many uh, multilingualism scholars, of course, in our field feel quite beleaguered and um, they kind of often feel a necessity to talk up multilingualism simply because they feel so Overwhelmed by um, the monolingual mindset or monolingual pressures, and so it seems like a critical response. So I, I I can also
0: think people feel bewildered. You're talking about Australia. You're talking in general. Um, I'm talking about junior
1: scholars now who are looking for their own topics and their own marks. I do not only think that you know they they um following like the big. People in the field, I do think that they have their own concerns and um, whatnot, but that their own concerns, particularly for those with um, uh, uh, social justice ethos and um, those who care about social justice really and see how uh, migrants in, in Australia, for instance, in Europe and North America experience a lot of disadvantage. They kind of You know, want to make a difference and um, maybe they sometimes confuse that language is just the proxy for, um, you know, poverty and inequality and injustice and they kind of want to make a difference and that's why they focus on linguistic diversity. So, I mean, I think that's what I would add in terms of choosing research topics today.
0: Yeah, well, I see this actually as very different types of scholarship, honestly. Um, when you look at, again, I was doing state of the field, so I read just about every recent handbook. And when you look at the latest handbook on language and super diversity, you don't find much about linguistic inequality. You just find a lot of celebration of super diversity and multilingual repertoires and um, complexity but very little of the kind of work in linguistic inequality and justice that you and Alexandre Duchesne and others do. So to me, these are once again diverging conversations.
1: Yeah, that's true. And handbooks are maybe another story, but let's not get too gloomy and let's actually um, talk about one of your favorite multilingual polities in history, because I kind of want to get back to... um, your Ina Haugen lecture and to all your research about multilingualism in history. So I was wondering, could you maybe pick and, you know, I mean, this is a very difficult word, it's an impossible question, but could you pick maybe your favorite multilingual polity at some point in history and tell us a bit about
0: it? Well, first of all, I just wanted to say that we're not being gloomy. The fact that everybody's walking in one direction means that there are wonderful opportunities now for junior scholars to do things new and different. That, to me, is a great positive. What I tried to do in my Einar Hogan lecture is to identify many, many gaps and lacunae that still exist. And um, they exist in the modern world just as much as they exist in history. So, for example, there is no one book on the language policies and management in the Ottoman Empire. Perhaps because they never envisioned the idea that languages could be managed. But so be it. (laughs) If I were to choose where to live um, in the Middle Ages (sighs) and being female... I thought about that and I would probably pick one of two places. Um, If I wanted a warmer climate, I would go to Norman Palermo. Everything I know about Norman Palermo comes from the books by two wonderful historians, Jeremy Jones and Alex Metcalf, and from my visit to Palermo. And um, it has one of the most interesting and to me least known um multilingual polities, the Norman Kingdom of Sicily. Anina, can you just
1: tell our listeners, because many of them will not actually know um Maybe where Palermo is, and, and certainly not what okay. Norman
0: Palermo was. So, way on out. i am getting there. So, Palermo is a city in Sicily, famous today mainly as being the hometown of Sicilian mafia. In 1072, it was a Muslim city taken over several centuries before by Arabs. And it was a f- the first city that fell to Christians. Two brothers named Giscard, uh, one of them died soon after the other brother Roger de who became the first ruler of a very interesting patchwork kingdom that included a Greek dominant Calabria and Arabic dominant Palermo. And if you think about the day 1072, it's just six years after the battle of Hastings where Normans take over London and England. And in both places, they face the same dilemma of what language do we use at neither place, they use their own because their own language is an unstandardized vernacular. Nobody uses that. So in London, they start with English that they try Latin Latin works in the patchwork kingdom of Calabria and Sicily, Latin doesn't work. And so eventually they create a trilingual kingdom with a trilingual administration that works in Greek, Arabic, and Latin. And they have three groups of scribes in the Royal Chancellor of Palermo. And when the son of the original conqueror becomes king, Roger II, uh, the hymns are sang in Greek and Latin, and his royal mantle and symbols of royal power are engraved in three languages, Arabic amongst them. The money is in three languages. The documents are in three languages. And, um, if you go to Palermo today, you still find inscriptions in three languages. And, uh, there is at least one memorial plaque, a tombstone from 1148 in four languages, Latin, Greek, Arabic and Arabic in Hebrew script. So they wanted to project the multilingual image. But what I like about the modern historians who study Palermo is the fact that they dispel on uh, the easy, simplistic assumptions we make about multilingualism. Um, in 2016, uh, there was a very interesting exhibit on Sicily in the British Museum. And so all the newspapers, starting with The Guardian, said, well, what a tolerant kingdom, the pluralist kingdom, the wonderful, tolerant, uh, open-minded Norman kings. So the leading scholar on the issue, Jeremy Jones felt the need to write an op-ed saying, well, the objects were produced within the confines of the Royal court, and they were not really trying to project tolerance. They were projecting power, dominance, and strength in three languages. And I think when we look back into the past, even if we make an assumption that multilingualism was often the case. We make a very simplistic association between multilingual inscriptions from our modern point of view. If you use three languages, you must be tolerant. There is more to it. They use three languages. They didn't use their own. It's because their own was a vernacular, but Arabic had the strength of centuries of bureaucracy behind it, as did Greek. So they borrowed Byzantine practices. They created their financial administration on the model of Fatimid Cairo. They brought in scribes and clerks from those places that had experience with bureaucracy. And they happened to be Greek and Arabic speaking places that corresponded with the languages of the population. But if they took over populations that spoke unstandardized vernaculars, those vernaculars would not have been used. And so to me, that is a very important and subtle distinction that we often miss. It was not about your language my language it was about multilingual hierarchies of the most prestigious languages and everything else does that make sense
1: uh, absolutely and everything else of course we don't actually have a record of, of what everything else was kind of so i mean um, yeah the let's say everyday people or are, are those non elite people and um Surely we don't must...
0: even know much about Wait. the people. The reason I yeah. want to go in the time machine to Palermo is we don't know much about the communication in the royal court. We know about their documents and their inscriptions. Well, how did they talk? We know there were Arabs and Greeks and Latins and Franks in the royal court. I want to know how they all communicated. I yeah. really want to be a fly on the wall in that place.
1: Yeah. Um... Just as an aside, I recently read um, John Gallagher's Language Learning in Early Modern English, and um, I think you've seen it too. And um, that is actually a really amazing attempt to what language learning would have been would have looked like and so he traces through all kinds of ads for language teaching services and whatnot and of course that starts later so we wouldn't have that in the middle ages but um, he also speaks about like how infuriating it is that we actually know so little and he has this really intriguing story of two guys in a pub arguing over the pronunciation of a Spanish word. So there is a notice in a 17th century London paper that two guys in a pub argued about the pronunciation of a Spanish word. One of them drew a sword and um, injured the other fatally. And then I... um, the, the the one who um, That The the murderer was then actually found guilty of uh, murder and and was hanged. And so that's all we have. But it's kind of such an interesting story. I mean, you kind of wonder what must that have been about that um, an argument over pronunciation of a word actually led to murder. So
0: yeah, we we just... Yeah, the story and the book you're talking about tell us something very interesting about the sources we've been overlooking. Mm -hmm. But one of the reasons why we don't know more is not because there is not enough information, it's because we didn't look at all the right places. Mm -hmm. If you look at the history of the field from the 19th century on, even multilingualism has traditionally been studied in literature because, of course, we privilege literature, it's so important poetry, code switching and manuscripts, it's all very nice, but in reality, it's not happening just in literature. What's interesting to me are documents, administrative documents, bureaucratic documents, charters. Another type of source we have from the ancient world onwards are trial proceedings. What is happening in court? And that tells you a lot about the everyday spoken language and what how people testified, who interpreted what. Of course, letters and diaries, all sorts of Ego documents came into use recently, newspapers. And so my story is not as dramatic as yours, but I have a story too from my own studies of what was going on in Pennsylvania in the 17th century. And it's a story of two guys going into a bar. One guy is William Penn, the founder of Pennsylvania and Philadelphia. And the other guy is a recent immigrant from Germany named Franz Pastorius. And William Penn, of course, speaks English, some French and Latin. Pastorius is multilingual, um, but he doesn't know any English, Know several other languages, which William Penn doesn't know. William Penn's French is not very good, Pastorius, um doesn't know English, so eventually they decide that they will speak uh, in Latin as a lingua franca. And when you look at the history of the colonies, this is exactly what the colonies corresponded on and negotiated in the Swedish, Dutch, and English uh, colonies communicated in Latin. And so these guys are sitting in a bar and they're talking, they're technically in a tavern. And then another guy comes over to the table and he happens to be a Native American chief. What happens next comes from Pastorius' diary. William Penn switches to Lenape, the local language of the Delaware, and introduces the chief to Pastorius. William Penn, however he learned it, actually made a point of learning the local Native American language. And now I am looking into how they made that effort, what kind of conversation books circulated at the time, So um, to me, those little glimpses give me a sense that there is much more to learn. And as one German historian said, um, there are major gaps in American history because American historians sometimes don't know the quaint European languages like Latin, Dutch, and German. And so there's still materials to be uncovered and studied and um, give us a completely different picture of the world before yesteryear, but I find it fascinating to see these two guys in the bar talking Latin, then native American chief comes in and they switch to Lenape.
1: Yeah, that, I mean, that is just amazing. And I think we often forget that, um, the early British colonizers seem to have been quite, um, quite keen on language learning, actually. So they were really interested um, uh, with some, uh, some of them, certainly with some of my stu- with my students. I've recently read um, some of the diaries of the um, officers of the first fleet to um, settle Sydney. And um, hmm. they certainly, you know, they certainly wanted to learn the local language. They weren't very successful at, at it and they, continuously have these notes like, you know, we still don't know much and all they've Mm -hmm. just discovered another misunderstanding where they kind of thought that like, they thought kangaroo was the native word for a kangaroo. In fact, it wasn't actually it was um, an indigenous word from Queensland that Captain Cook had picked up on a voyage. And so they kind of continuously discover misunderstandings and um but at the same time they did make an effort really and so um that's that is quite um amazing to see actually or surprising to see at least um from, makes from it very today's...
0: different from uh, the english colonies actually in the United States because in the US that William Penn was an exception in wanting to learn Native American languages. The main learners were, of course, missionaries, uh, German immigrants, but um, the high-powered English uh, normally did not. Um, They learned French, Dutch, Latin, because they were already very hierarchical in their view of languages. And uh, they treated Native American languages just like they treated Irish and Welsh at home. And so... In the colonies, what you see is a lot of the use of interpreters, and the interpreters are rarely, very rarely Mm Anglo's. They're German, they're Dutch, they're Native Americans, um, but um, the English are accommodated with interpreters, they don't.
1: No. Yeah, and I didn't want to paint too rosy a picture of um, the first fleet either. Um, actually, after a while, they're just so frustrated that they can't learn the Sydney language, that they give up and decide, oh, we better kidnap um, a couple of uh, Indigenous people so that they can learn English and we'll teach them English. So, um, yes, yeah, certainly um, it didn't take too long, actually, for them to kind of give up on their efforts. So, um, yeah.
0: No, I think that the important part for the students to remember and see that what we see throughout history is the hierarchical nature of multilingualism. Mm-hmm. Are Romans open-minded and tolerant because they learn Greek? No, they see Greek as uh, higher on the hierarchy than Latin. It is to be learned, but the same uh, is not going to be extended to Demotic Egyptian or Gaulish. Um, this is unnecessary. And the same we see with the English. When they issued the 1366 statutes of Kilkenny, telling English settlers in Ireland to speak English, not to speak Irish. Well, the interesting thing about the statutes, they're articulated in French. So okay. for the English kings, Latin and French are still higher than English, Irish is lower on the hierarchy. And that is something that we see throughout history. Whoever speaks the top language can afford to be monolingual. Everybody else learns up. Very few people learn down. And even fewer people are not aware of what the hierarchies are.
1: Yeah, everyone knows the hierarchy. Even yeah. Everyone knows what the currency is, even if they can't produce the currency themselves, absolutely.
0: Exactly, that is why I see the talking about multilingual cities and increasing diversity is so disingenuous because we all know that the languages that immigrants speak are often devalued. And that is why I call this diversity inconsequential because, not because I see it as inconsequential, but because it is not taken into consideration in any kind of uh, meaningful multilingual accommodations.
1: Look, moving on from this um, important point that you've just made, that um, languages are typically learned up in a hierarchy, so languages are ordered hierarchically and then people learn up. There is, of course, nowadays a strong concern amongst um, migrant populations and particularly the second and third generation, whether you still want to call them migrants. So, am um, I don't, the, I, yes, I, 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 when I, they called I, second and third generation. So migrants. whatever you want to call them, I'm a heritage language learner. So uh, what I want to ask you is that we, now I see actually a kind of, return or longing for heritage languages and that um, the children of migrants or even the grandchildren who have lost their parents' language for, you know, a similar reason and whatnot, actually do start to um, learn heritage languages or ancestral languages and that there is quite a movement. and um, I'm curious what your perspective is on um, heritage language learning and the prospects of um, this valorization of ancestral tongues.
0: Well, I wish I could say something positive and I'm sure there are positive things to be said, uh, but uh, they are already said by other people. Uh, For me, this movement is yet another reiteration in a noble form of the same linguistic nationalism that tells people you are what you speak, Um, you should speak a certain language. I think people should always have a choice. If they want to learn the ancestral language, that's fine. But to make a virtue of it and then to enforce it on the whole groups of people by telling them this is your language, this is what you should speak. You should feel guilty for not speaking it. That to me becomes a problem and it creates a lot of uncomfortable situations. When we look at, um, language revitalization studied by my colleagues in Norway, where heritage language speakers feel uncomfortable speaking their own heritage language because they may not be perfect enough and they may be judged. So. My sense is that when we look at history in the long durée, um, we have become significantly more emotional about language, <laughs> and that is not a good thing. That is not a positive development, whichever way it plays out. The other thing I would say is that we treat minority and heritage languages as underdogs, and we always feel sorry for speakers of certain types of languages or speakers of other types of languages. But once again, when we look historically, we see that when the tables turn, former speakers of a minority language are just as happy to oppress somebody else. That is why I like using um, the Austro-Hungarian Empire as uh, one of the most important examples, because there we see Hungarians who use Latin as their administrative language and the language of debates in the parliament, In the 19th century, they eventually realized that uh, perhaps they should be using Hungarian. They start doing that, but they're in a minority in their own uh, land. So they impose Hungarian on everybody else. They try to magyarize Slovaks. Slovaks are oppressed, they're unhappy. um, They develop their own national movement. Eventually, the empire falls apart. Slovaks reunite with Czechs, form Czechoslovakia. And then feel oppressed by Czech to the point that when Hitler comes to power and World War II begins, um, the leader, the prime minister and the president of Slovakia put Slovakia under the protection of the third Reich and solve their diversity problem once and forever by deporting Czechs, solving the Jewish question. From being uh, less than 30% in their capital of Bratislava, they move up eventually to 90%. But it happens at the expense of extermination, expulsion, deportation after the war. And to me, every time on this kind of turning of the table happens, it's at a terrible price. And I'm not sure having a unified linguistic public place is worth this kind of price. I may be accused of imperial nostalgia, but um, I think there is something to be said about learning to live with people different from you. And I think that a unified linguistic marketplace does not solve the problem as seeing in the United States where we all speak the same language, but we all wish to unmix. And we would like to create two countries, one Republican, one Democrat, so we don't have to face each other. How far do we take the unmixing process?
1: Yeah, that's true, and um, at the same time, I guess that brings us to this question: So, how um, you you've spoken so eloquently about the relationship between language and power, and that we really need to be much more clear-eyed about um, power relationships and how language is kind of ancillary to our relationships. Um, And that, you know, different polities govern govern themselves in different linguistic arrangements, but that doesn't necessarily mean that um, a multilingual polity is a more inclusive or a more egalitarian polity than a monolingual one and of course the other the opposite doesn't hold either but i guess what does that actually mean for societies like the us um, like australia like other western liberal democracies and, and in fact not only liberal democracies many many countries, many polities today face this problem, that they've seen the imposition of um, monolingualism. And now we actually see um, lots of minorities who have been disadvantaged and discriminated against, um, you know, seeking their just place. And um, language becomes one of the one of their rallying cries? Um, How how do we kind of deal with those? Or or what kind of suggestions do you have? And and are there any lessons also from the past to be learned from minority languages actually becoming beacons of the fight against oppression?
0: Well, I'm always skeptical about learning lessons from the past. Um, I think we There are things we can think about, but we all live in unique historic moments, and um, when we look at the ancient world, uh, there is not much we can learn because if you look at Ptolemaic Egypt, if you look at medieval kingdoms, they all had something we have no longer access to. They were very laissez-faire when it came to governing. Um, they gave community, they gave cities Magdeburg rights. They have community self-governing privileges. So, in ancient Egypt, Egyptians, Greeks, and Jews all had access to their own courts in their own language. Um, so did the inhabitants of. Uh, medieval Castile. So did the inhabitants of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. So each community, the small Armenian community of Lithuania has its own court. The Jews have their own court. So language questions do not uh, actually arise in this context when you have your own religious establishments, your own community governance. So it is because the nature of governmentality changed so drastically in the 19th, 20th century, That we're now facing problems that we haven't faced before. Mm -hmm. Having said that, once again, I think that Austrian part of the Austrian-Hungarian empire has tried to solve these problems and had uh, a variety of multilingual accommodations that modern so-called liberal democracies can only dream about. And it's deeply surprising to me that no textbook on multilingualism ever talks about the multilingual accommodations of the austro hungarian Empire or the former Soviet Union that had an amazing system of multilingual education. If we were to learn lessons from history, they wouldn't be from medieval kingdoms, but they would be from our own predecessors in the 19th and 20th century. And my fear is, is that on Linguistic nationalism makes, um, is impossible to unsink. Mm-hmm. And that even if we were to implement on uh, these uh, measures, which I doubt we will, we will find that our struggles will be fought on different terrains. I do think as a professional, as, um, a forensic linguist that we do need A set of accommodations to ensure political and social inclusion, but I see a major difference between inclusion and equity and equality. I don't know whether we can ever arrive, uh, at least in our own lifetime, to within a world that is equal for everyone. And if we are, I'm not convinced that um, just linguistic accommodations will get us there. Mm Yeah, these are big questions. And you've just mentioned, to maybe
1: bring this back to research again, you've just mentioned your own forensic linguistics research. And I was wondering whether maybe we could round this off um, or round this conversation off by speaking a bit more about what you see as the current challenges for multilingualism research, be it in forensic linguistics, be it it at the intersection of um, psycho and sociolinguistics, so what would you identify as the key challenges? And you've spoken about potential grad students listening to mm-hmm. this. Um, where are the interesting PhD topics that we need well, there to be addressing?
0: Are plenty of PhD topics, uh, but I think they're also bigger challenges that haunt all of us. And one of the challenges, uh, as I see it is an incredible pressure to be to bring emotions into our research and to be either incredibly positive, celebrating diversity, so to speak, or to be incredibly negative and uh, judge everything as inequitable, unequal, and be a warrior of social justice. Um, I may be a little old fashioned, but I think there is still room for good, old, um, old-fashioned research to just research. The movement is not unique to our own field in psychology, because there is now a branch called positive psychology. I don't know what that is and why we need psychology that's not psychology, but a positive psychology, but so be it. I do not wish to have positive linguistics. I think <laughs> it won't I'm- be long. I'm sure it already exists. Probably. I am sh- I'm <laughs> suspect we'd lose a lot of rigor if we did have... Um, And I also am always concerned about simplistic assumptions. And one of those assumptions I see in my own work is that um, somehow interpreting is uh, in service of justice. Yes and no. Legal interpreters, court interpreters, it's a profession that existed, um, has been documented in Ptolemaic Egypt already. It existed in medieval kingdoms. It existed in colonial Pennsylvania. And it was always in service of the state. It still is. It is naive to think that um, somehow we are warriors for justice. Um, If the accommodations were to exist, they would have to be on a different plane. Um, My own work deals with um, trying to make sure that police interrogation takes into consideration the different backgrounds people bring with them that people actually understand their rights. Um, And I work on that in the United States. Mm -hmm. I've testified in court, both um, on the side of the defense and the prosecution. It doesn't matter to me who I work for. It matters to me that I see a solid case supported by linguistic data. Mm -hmm. And um, I have also seen um, police officers and lawyers and judges who want the same better accommodations uh, more transparent system. But the changes we want to see are not language changes per se, they're structural changes. They have to do with how you administer the rights. So to give you a very simple example, and this is where some of the most groundbreaking work is actually taking place in Australia. And that's where I work with my dear Australian colleague, Diana Edes on communication guidelines for communication of rights. Linguists, Forensic linguists in particular have long assumed that We can create a wording that would be comprehensible to all. If you just simplify English enough, you can get to the point that it will be simple and comprehensible. Um, the study of mine that got the research award this year is an empirical study that shows that no matter how you simplify, there are words that have so many multiple meanings, like the word rights, that people will get it wrong. And sometimes people know all the meanings of rights, like right, left, right, wrong. They don't know the meaning of human rights, but they think they do. And so, what happens in many contexts that people think they understand, but they understand something very different from what is being said to them. They hear, "You have the right to have a lawyer present," and they hear what they actually hear is, "You have a right to a lawyer in prison," mm-hmm. and they're happy to waive that right because it's a useless right. Just like sometimes they hear, "You have a right to talk to the president," mm-hmm. also rather useless. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So, in a way, um, what we recommend in this guidelines, the point is not to translate, not to create simple wording, but to interact with people and do a dialogic delivery where you say, well, how do you understand this? Can you rephrase it in your own words? That, to me, is a more meaningful accommodation that language accommodations per se, translations per se, interpreting per se is to ask how people understand something. Can they rephrase it? Can they answer questions? And I have seen that happen in at least one police interrogation that I just published an article about. That to me is the way to more equitable process. The equitable process for me is a dialogic participatory, interactive process, not a process of creating more forms in more languages. That may just promote uh, some of the misunderstandings and that we're so concerned about. Thank
1: you, Anita. I'm 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 curious what your views are on. Um on apps in this context because of course the the, the big topic now is of course our automated translation and artificial intelligence and whatnot and um, recently in western australia a a jurisdiction in western australia actually introduced um, a police app that provides some automated translation of um, Maybe something like the Miranda warnings, and also s- communicates that you know they ha- that they have the right to an interpreter in an indigenous language. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm wondering what your perspective. And, and that's been celebrated as a major step
0: forward. And major step forward. I'm wondering what your perspective. Is. It was created in collaboration with forensic linguists. Mm-hmm. So I have trust in the process, in the system in this particular case, because it wasn't done by technology. It was done by and for Mm humans. And in in broader terms, how do you see the
1: overall movement? I mean, there is a lot of belief, of course, that um, automated translation will be able to solve all kinds of communication problems, be it... um, in in the police system, in custody, in the law, but also related
0: to well, other let me communication. Ask you a very simple question. You're married. I'm married. Do you ever miscommunicate with your husband?
1: No, never.
0: Of course, me neither. (laughs) Well, I think if we cannot solve uh, this problem completely with people we've known for 20, 30 years, we speak the same language and we still don't always make the same assumptions. um, I think we're very far away from um, having any kind of technology that can solve this problem for us. Mm -hmm. Do you see a danger maybe,
1: and I mean, I guess that's that's what I'm worried about, that it seems to me that the belief in automated translation actually creates new dangers and new pitfalls because um, we can then say, oh, but we've provided the translation, you know, Google app is a Google translate plugin is on our website, so it's super inclusive. For, um, Whatever and um, and and I think I mean there there are so many weaknesses there and as you say it completely cuts out this dialogic aspect that characterizes good communication. So um, I'm I'm kind of
0: well, I wondering think whether you see, but basically based on a very deep misunderstanding of the nature of language. Yeah. So. In some ways, if it's something for tourists who are wondering how to find the closest restaurant or the bathroom, I think they're a good thing. It could be very useful. But um, from what I've seen in research done by, once again, my Norwegian colleagues on police interrogation and um, interaction with immigrants, the Google translation does not yet work and has not yet been recommended. And um, I suspect the same is in the United States. Uh, The movement I see in the US is, in the past 20 years, hiring more police officers with some competence in um, other immigrant languages. So the interpreting is done by officers themselves, Mm -hmm. which is also not ideal, but may still be preferable to a Google app. Mm
1: Yeah, it seems like you know at least a step in the right direction. I mean, one thing um, we worry about here in Australia is, of course, that there still is quite a discrepancy between um, the officers of the law who are much more likely to be white, monolingual English speakers, in contrast to um, the people who actually come in front of the law and, and it you we know, interact with the law who are more likely to actually be from migrant backgrounds or um, people of color and so on and so forth. Look, um, before we close, let's maybe talk a bit more about your general view of the state of um, expertise in, in neoliberal academia and in publishing and any kind of advice you might have for young scholars who are just starting out on their research journeys?
0: Well, I think I've given some advice. I would just reiterate that young scholars should not be afraid to go and look for topics that are not researched by others. I think one very problematic type of advice was given to me when I was a younger scholar by somebody you and I both know. And that person said, well, Aneta, you need to... Select one topic and stay with it and brand it. It should be your group with branding. And Anita, I was not that conversation. Yeah. <laughs> we were having drinks yes. in a yes. bar. Yes. And I've always tried to do the opposite. I've always tried to look at dark corners where something interesting may be found and put some light and move on. And just open areas of research, be to the mental lexicon, be it emotions, be it the communication of rights to provide as much information as possible so that other people could work on this and find their own answers. But I think the key to having a productive and satisfying career is to look at things that other people have not yet done to try and understand why nobody has looked at it yet is it because it's not worthwhile is it because people judge it to be too difficult and then just go for it and worry later about how you might or might not brand your own work to me it's just such a problematic approach in so many levels um but i think the field at large is hungry for something new and different despite uh, the great fragmentation we suffer People also want answers to broader questions. We also want answers to pertinent questions like the ones you asked me today. And so what I would advise young scholars is not to become part of a tiny group whose members only speak to each other. That is the pathway to nowhere. But to try to speak to the larger field, to try to engage in as many conversations interactions possible to see and to always think, why am I doing this? Who might be interested in this? who might benefit from this? What am I delivering on? How is that important?, mm-hmm. yeah, you' done fantastically. oh sorry to
1: interrupt, but I just don't done do fantastically well, does it, yeah. Go, go, go. Yeah. No, I, I was just going to say, look, I still, you know, I, I think you've done fantastically well and I, I still enjoy reading every new piece of research that you put up because I learned something new. And um, that is actually a really rare thing, I think, in a scholar that you can read their work over many years and... Um, you actually discover something new and exciting in it. I mean, I enjoyed reading the chapter that became this lecture immensely. And um, we've been, you know, we've been researching in the same space and and we've been in an ongoing conversation over many years and there's something new in there. And so that's
0: just brilliant and wonderful. And um, I wish there was more of that. My last secret is that you have to have a friend like Ingrid that when you feel like you produce something, you can send it to somebody like that and expect good critical feedback. I've never been afraid of critical feedback, always looked for it. And having a good friend who can provide insightful comments means the world to me. Did many years ago, and it still does. We don't, we're not islands, we work with other people. Thank you. And that brings us back to the importance
1: of actually also understanding personal relationships and, and, and valuing personal relationships more in, in research. And um, you know, they're just incredibly fascinating and amazing. And ultimately what drives
0: us, I think, also, you know, what drives people uh, forward. And, interesting way. relationships. Yours and mine is based on critical feedback. I have also seen personal relationships based on a consensus that we will not criticize each other. That is not a good type of relationship that produces a lot of garbage that um, gets published for no reason whatsoever and um, reproduces incredibly ignorant assumptions, putting them out there in the world. And uh, what I want to say to students is not everything that is published is worth reading. Oh, that's a good point yes i fully endorse that <laughs> and your friends are not people who tell you oh this is brilliant your friends are people who tell you well how about this and that here are some flaws fix this uh, i'm questioning that those are your best friends mm-hmm. the people who agree with you on everything are not mm-hmm. yeah that's true um Lots of codependent, and
1: dysfunctional relationships in academia too. Um, Look, Aneta, before we close, tell us what you're working on now. What's your current research project and what exciting stuff can we expect next from you?
0: Well, uh, because I happen to be one of those people who wants to ask a question and answer it and move on. I try to work on new things and I try to work usually on two projects in parallel before I get bored. So the emotions research, like, I know it goes on, but I've answered my questions. I am no longer interest. I don't have any other questions to ask. So I moved on and the questions I have now have all been about history. And, um, what makes them interesting to me is that looking at history helps me understand where my own and others questions come from, because our questions are shaped by a particular historic moment. So the book I'm writing now is on uh, the history of multilingual societies. One is an edited volume that is a collaboration with historians, and one is my own monograph about the different interesting and exotic societies written for the widest possible public. I just try to speak in my own voice and tell the story as I see it. And in parallel i continue my research in forensic linguistics and i am now working with wonderful colleagues from the uh, national association of judicial interpreters to see if we can actually create a set of translated warnings of the miranda warnings which at this point do not exist in the united states australia may have apps uk may have a website in the united states we have um numerous no circulating translations, but not one that has been endorsed by certified court interpreters. So that's what we're trying to work on. It's a practical project that I'm collaborating on. That sounds all
1: fascinating. there will be um not only lots of good reads in there, but um I'm sure also really applied and useful outcomes that actually make a difference. So
0: absolutely. Papers. And here I want to give a shout out to my postdoc in Norway, Papa Orbanik, who's been working on the the region project of ours on police interrogation of non-native speakers. And Pavel is now giving workshops at the police academy in Oslo and working with detectives and um, helping them understand how to interrogate non-native speakers better with um, more respect and more understanding of the linguistics problems they're facing. Mm -hmm. And And that's a great way to end our
1: conversation, to actually Point to the brilliant work of um, the next generation of scholars and how they are carrying multilingualism research into the future. So thank you so much, Oneda, for your time and for this conversation, which I enjoyed a lot and I hope our listeners will too.
0: Well, it has been a great pleasure. Thank you so much, Ingrid.